Hello and welcome back to From the Yarra River to the Mediterranean Sea. My name is Hannah and I'm joining you in Abbotsford, close by uh, the Yarra River in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And my name's Itai and I'm joining you here from my home in Jerusalem, which is about 70 k's from the Mediterranean Sea. I would like to begin by acknowledging that this podcast is being recorded on unceded land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I want to pay my respect to their elders past and present, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So as he very nicely introduced himself, I'm joined by Itai, who is a Jerusalem-based peace educator and journalist with Plus 61J Media. And I am a family lawyer in Melbourne, no specialisation whatsoever in this war or Israeli and Palestinian conflicts, just a very interested bystander and I know how to make a podcast. So this episode is called Where Did It All Begin? But it also could be called They Never Taught Me This at School because I look back on my education that I got and uh, I'm a, especially in the last six weeks, I'm thinking, why did I never learn this? There's so much stuff that I'm being taught now or, you know, just through me asking questions and Instagram and, and having conversations with other people that I literally never knew in 12 years of Jewish education. So I want to just ask you a question and why you think we ne- we only learnt about one narrative. Why Why did we not? I didn't even know really that much about the Palestinians until I went to Israel and went on the Breaking the Silence tour. Look, I think, you know, I was a teacher at, at Bialik, at Scopus, at King David, um, even at Adas for a little bit. Um, and I think all those schools in, in Australia, you know, parents send their kids there because they want them to learn about Israel, but more importantly, they want them to love Israel. And the reason they want them to love mm. Israel is because Israel is a huge part of Jewish identity in Australia, the Australian Jewish community is overwhelmingly a Zionist community. I think about uh, 70% of Australian Jews identify as Zionists. And so and so it's, I guess, no surprise that schools are wary of, of teaching anything really that um, may challenge people's beliefs um, to, to not wanting to support Israel or something like that. And and I often see it as a, as a kind of relationship, you know, when I know, I know your expert is dating, which is something I know nothing about. But um, um, you know, you know when you're when you're falling in love with someone, you don't criticize them. You don't say, "Oh, you, I don't like the way you made dinner," or "I don't like that you you leave your socks all over the house." You don't do that until you really trust them and that and that you really feel that they can hear that feedback and you can hear that feedback. And I think for a lot of Jewish educators, you know they see what we give kids up until they're 18 as a kind of falling in love. So when you're falling in love, you you just look at the positives and you just look at why the other side is wonderful and you're sort of like infatuated. And then, and I get that, and I get that falling in love is really important. That's why the schools have informal education departments that do amazing things and camps and Israel trips and all of that. But if your relationship is only infatuation, that's not a good relationship. Like a relationship has to involve criticism and dialogue and challenging and, and that sort of thing. And and I think for some people, like in your case, came on a Breaking the Silence tour, and for other people it happens in all sorts of different ways from reading books, from meeting educators, maybe it can happen online as well. But I think a healthy relationship with Israel is one that is not just 
a falling in love relationship, but he's also one of critical questioning. And I know we're recording this now during a war and maybe this is the hardest time possible to be asking these questions. And I get that for a lot of people, what we might talk about here might be uncomfortable because they'll say, look, this is not the time Mm. to be looking into these questions. But we feel that Dafka, because so many people are asking these questions now that this is exactly the time to be doing Mm. this. I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I look back and I think it was actually pretty irresponsible to just do a falling in love. Like that's not, school is a place where you're meant to be educated. You're not meant to be falling in love and and not thinking about, uh, you know, a whole, whole other people. Like this is history that we didn't get taught. And now there are people who are looking at this war through that lens. And I don't know, I feel, I mean, I'm allowed to say it, you don't have to comment, <laughs> but I'm happy to say that I feel let down, I think, by the education because I don't think if I had learnt about this, I don't think I would have felt less in love with Israel. I just would have learnt it, you know, like, I mean, it's kind of the same with Indigenous studies. I hardly learnt about um, Indigenous Australians, but it does, if, if I did, it wouldn't mean that I wouldn't love being an Australian, you know. I just think it's kind of irresponsible teaching, but you don't have to comment. <laughs> no, I, I have to comment. Look, I also went to Scopus too, and I also had an education where I learned almost nothing about the Palestinians. Um, but I think I wouldn't be in Israel today having, you know, made Aliyah, doing my Zionist education, Jewish education my whole life, if I hadn't had that falling in love. Like, I think, I think the falling in love put me in a relationship with this country and this place. And obviously, I personally was born here as well. So, I had many other reasons to love this place beyond my Jewish education and and to care about the people here. And I think I think um, it's really important that you know what we're talking about here is not sort of some game of chess with different pieces that you move around and they cause different results. You know, we're talking about human lives, and I think I think the Jewish education that both of us got taught us to care about this place. And, yeah, it probably could have been done better and, and probably there's many educators now that are trying to to do it better because they understand the limits of kind of a one-sided education. But I think it's also, it has its place in bringing us to have this conversation in the first place. Mm, yeah. Well, maybe let's get into it then. Look, what you learned wasn't untrue. You just learned half a story. Um, That's and, right. And... And and I think, again, it's important to know that half of the story, but I don't think you can understand what's happening today without knowing the whole story. Um, I remember when I started learning this, uh, trying to understand the Palestinian narrative myself when I was working at, at Kids for Peace, obviously beyond the people I speak to, I started going to Palestinian museums because uh, I think a museum is really interesting because museums often have a narrative of a beginning, a middle and an end and the way they tell a story and one of the most impressive museums I went to was uh, it's called the Palestinian Museum. It's in Bilzeit. And I was really interested wow. to know where they would start. And I was thinking, oh, they'll probably start at 1948, you know, with the Nakba. I was just sure they would start there. And so I, I get into the museum, and the first panel in the museum is 1748. I don't know anything huh. that happened in that, – that's like hundreds of years ago. Why are you starting in 1748? And so they begin – the story of the Palestinian people with this guy called Zahar al-Omar. Zahar al-Omar was um, one of the first sort of local indigenous rulers of this place. He actually ruled 
from the river to the sea, as the name of our podcast says, um, for about 40 years from, from 1748. He was based in in Akka, in, or Akko as, as Jews call it, um, yeah. and he really was the, the leader of the first, I guess, independent Palestinian political entity um, here under the under the Ottoman Empire. And then um, and then throughout the museum I, I sort of learnt about um, the trading that happened from Akko to the rest of the world and the cotton industry and that sort of thing. And and one of the things that that came up was that um, you know I, w- I was always taught uh, in my Jewish day school that either there's no such thing as Palestinians or it's a made up people or mm, you know Yes, they, I also learnt that. They they don't really exist or they only exist because of us and and it turns out that that in eighteen seventy two um there was actually um something called a, a wilayet, which is like a province of the of the Ottoman Empire that had a governor. He was called the governor of Palestine. His name was Surayab Pasha and and he was only governor for a week, so it was a very very short lived state. Um, but um, you do have with Zahar Omar and Suray Pasha, you know, I guess the beginnings of sort of local Arab rule over themselves here before um, before Zionism. And you also, if you look at the demographics of this place before the the rise of modern Zionism, like in eighteen ninety. You know, there's 530,000 people living here, of which 432,000 are Muslim, 57,000 are Christians, and 43,000 are Jews. The Jews that lived here before modern Zionism mainly lived in the four holy cities of Jerusalem, Tzfat, Hebron, and Tiberias. Right. So what that means that only like 8% of Palestine at that time were Jews before the first Aliyah. Yeah. So what that means is that you know, when when you got taught in your Jewish day school that Jews have always had an unbroken presence in the land of Eretz Israel, it's true. Like, we have been here for a very long time, but you've also got to remember that we were a tiny minority. And it's not like we were always the majority here like, like we are today. So, yeah, how did we become a majority today? And and also, before I answer that, before you answer that question, um, there's a whole lot of things going around on Instagram, like who's indigenous to the land, given that, um, you know, clearly Palestinians were there, you know, in, from 1748 and, and Jews have been there, you know, also since that time. Are, are both Jews and Palestinians indigenous in quote unquote um, to the land? Right. So there's there's an interesting terminology that I have to explain between Jew, Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian. And a lot of people use those words interchangeably or get them confused. So Jews or Jewish people um, had obviously a presence here thousands of years ago with the two temples. Jews, a large number of Jews obviously left when those temples were destroyed and there was the Exodus and um, lived in mainly in the Middle East and also in Europe. And then there was a return of Jews with the beginning of the Zionist movement. Um, Muslims, not Palestinians, Muslims first came um, here with the with the conquest after the Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam, uh, passed away. Uh, Caliph Omar um, had a conquest over really the entire Middle East, including Palestine. So that's really where the Muslim presence begins uh, in Palestine, so that's from the seventh century um, onwards. And indigenous is a really interesting word because indigenous implies like original inhabitant. Now, the original mm. inhabitants, 
you know, go all the way back to the Bible, you know, you've probably heard of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, you know, yeah. you know those sorts of nations. They don't exist anymore, but um, Jews obviously draw a linkage to the Hebrews or the Israelites or the Judeans or, you know, there the, was various names of the of the people that lived here. They didn't call themselves Israelis, you know, that's a modern term, but we definitely draw a connection to that ancient history in the same way that Palestinians draw a connection to um, the people that were here that were not Jewish, you know, Palestinians mm. will say Jesus was a Palestinian. They'll say that... Um, or Ishmael, like this is going really back to my, yeah. my <laughs> Jewish yeah, day school days. Or Ishmael in the Quran is, is a character in the in the Quran. But but I think, I think Palestinians, you know, generally say anyone that lived in Palestine before, you know, before us... Um, is part of our heritage, but the term, you know, Palestinian in terms of like as a sort of, I guess, national identity um, is about 120 years old. That's when you start sort of hearing, you know, people calling themselves Palestinian as as a distinct identity. Also, and this is where it's confusing, at that time, Palestinian also meant Jewish. It also meant Christian. It also meant Muslim. So people mm. that call themselves Palestinian from about 120 years ago are referring to people that live in Ottoman Palestine um, and they are calling themselves that because that's the that's the geographic name of the area where they're living. Right. Okay. Interesting. I feel like, yeah, that's been a huge question on so many people's minds, including mine. So, okay, how did we get then to a majority today of Jews, I mean? You've got to go back to Russia to answer this question. So during the the 1880s, after Tsar Nicholas was uh, assassinated and many people said that a Jew assassinated him, it's true, but there was um, unfortunately a wave of pogroms which are sort of like anti-Jewish attacks that happened in several uh, villages across um, what was then the Pale of Settlement, today is called Russia, um, and... Uh, and it basically made life untenable for Jews. Jews were being killed. They were being discriminated against economically, just made life very, very difficult to leave. And there were like three options for what Jews could do at that time. So one option was to go to the United States, which was at that time very welcoming of immigrants and, um, you know, seen as a new country that would potentially be open to taking us and allowing us to start a new life there. And, um, there was a downside, which was that it was quite expensive to get to the United States, but if you had the means to do that, then mm. that was an option. A second option was to join the Bund, um, which was a Jewish socialist movement that, that basically was based on the idea that if we can make Russia a place where all people are treated equally, um, then Jews will also be treated equally. And so, you know, international socialism is the way to save Jewish lives. Um, and fight to make Russia better. Mm. And then the third option was Zionism, which was to, to leave and start a new country in a different place where Jews would be a majority, where Jews would have self-determination. Now, of those three options, um, Zionism was not the most popular one, <laughs> not by a long shot. In fact, over 2 million Jews chose America. They, you know, they got on ships, they landed in Ellis Island, in New York, and started new lives there, and that's really the mm. beginning of the 
American Jewish story. A few million also chose socialism and later many Jews were communists as well, um, seeing that, you know, fighting for making Russia a place where Jews could live could be, you know, the best answer. And then a tiny, tiny minority chose Zionism. I'm talking 20,000 out of like four or five million. So like a really small group came here on what was called the first Aliyah. And they came to mainly for what were then rural settlements. Now they're very large cities, but Petach Tikva, Rishon Letzion, Rehovot, Chadera. And they started agricultural farms here. And initially the first Aliyah wasn't opposed by the Arab population because people have come here for many years to to settle the land and they and they saw Jews settling the land and um, there, there wasn't initially major conflicts between Jews and Arabs during um, that first Aliyah uh, period. Sorry, what what year was this? That in? was eighteen eighty two. Was the was the first Aliyah in uh, in Petah Tikva? Yeah. So when they got there, how did they actually set up these uh, communities? Like, did they? pay Palestinians for land or whoever was living there? Did they take it over by force? What what happened in the first Aliyah? So this is a bit more complicated how they got onto that land. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. No, no. <laughs> so, look, land is something that you buy with money. Um, and if you want to set up an agricultural settlement, then you have to pay someone for it. Um, so probably the most famous example of a case where land was bought that caused conflict was actually in Rehovot in 1913, where um, Jews bought the land um, from what I'd call absentee landowners. So they were people who owned the land. They didn't live on the land. They lived in Beirut or Damascus, you know, Syria, what's today Syria and Lebanon. And these absentee landlords um, essentially sold the land for money, not really telling the people who were living on the land, which were Bedouin or local Arab people, that their land had been sold. And then all of a sudden Jews show up and say, look, we've bought this land and we want to live here and uh, it's ours. They showed a piece of paper. And then the Arab and Bedouin say, but hold on, we've been living here for hundreds of years. Who sold this to you? And they say, look, some guy in, in Beirut or Damascus sold it to me. And, and you've got this conflict between sort of, I call it between right and right. Like, on the one hand, land belongs to the person who paid money for it. That's how property works. But on the other hand, if you're a tenant mm. and someone sold your property without telling you that your property was sold, then you're going to get pretty shitty that, you know, all of a sudden there's someone else on this land that is saying, you know, this was sold to me and this is my land. And so in 1913, you have really the first conflict that is violent where someone's killed where... Um, there's there's a, a Bedouin who's like picking some grapes in Rehovot that you know belong to a Jewish orchard. Um, he's killed, and the Bedouin you know kills some Jewish people in response. And then that start, and then there's a letter that's sent to the Ottoman Empire saying, look, we have a dispute over this piece of land here. Who who's it belong to? You know what what's going on here? And um, and because of that letter, we we know um, we know how this thing began and. Uh, throughout the years, Jews bought more and more land um, through these absentee landlords that lived in, in Beirut or, or Damascus, um, which was legal. Again, there was a lot of money that was paid for, for this land, but gradually there was a dispossession of Palestinians that lived on this land that didn't agree for that land to be sold, um, and that was mm. really 
the seeds of the conflict. And then after that, there was other land that was acquired, obviously, without buying it through um, other means as well. Okay, so just to clarify, in um, 1882, the first Aliyah, the first group of Jews come to Palestine um, and they and the Ottoman Empire, they were the one who had control over the land at that time? Yeah. Okay, so were they buying the land off the Ottoman Empire or were they buying the land off the Arabs who were living there? So they were buying the land from what's called an absentee landlord, just to explain how this happened. So there was a there was a reform called the Tanzimat where the Ottoman Empire basically decided that all land had to be registered by someone. And a lot of Palestinians or Arabs that lived here didn't want to register the land in their own name for two reasons. The first is if land is registered in your name, you have to pay tax on it. And the second thing is once you become a landlord, then you also are eligible for conscription into the Ottoman Empire army, which could mean army service for 10 or 15 years. It's a very, very long army service. So in order to avoid both the taxation mm. issue and the conscription issue, what the local population in, in Palestine did was it got large pieces of land to be registered under one person's name, under one sheikh, and then that sheikh sort of was the owner of all of these different people's lands, and then he could do, you know, because the land was under his name, he could obviously sell it. And so at a certain point, these sheikhs who mm. lived later on in places like Beirut and Damascus did sell this land to people like uh, Baron Maurice de Hirsch or uh, Edmund de Rothschild, and, um, and that land was bought by a group called the Jewish Colonial Association that had raised money, you know, to to buy these um, to buy these pieces of land. Again, they were legal transfers. There's nothing illegal about buying land from people, except that the people whose land was being sold never knew about it, um, and that and that's why mm. there's um, so much anger at these land purchases because it was done without the consent of the owner um, who's, who's, you know, the people that were living on it. Because you've got to remember that a lot of the, the Arab or Palestinian people that were living here in the 1880s were illiterate. Like, they weren't able to um, understand what was going on here, um, and so they feel kind of duped by that process. On the other hand, the Zionists will say, well, we did a legitimate business transaction. You know, we raised money, we bought the land, we're here fair and square, so what's the problem? Mm. Okay, so interesting. Didn't know any of that. <laughs> but I want to go back on something that you just said. You said something about the, the colonial movement mm. and colonialism has been coming up a lot on Instagram. Um, people say that Zionism is a colonial movement um, and there's a lot of backlash towards that. And I want, to, I want you to answer this question for me. Was the first Aliyah and also the Zionist movement a colonial movement? And what does that even mean? Yeah, so, so settler colonialism, which is the word you hear on Instagram all the time, is a form of colonialism that seeks to replace an original population of a colonised territory with a new society of settlers. So countries like Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, they're all examples of settler colonial countries where sort of a mother country, um, usually it's like Spain or France or England, sends people to another country and then they colonise that country. They usually take its wealth, so its oil, its tea, its gold, its diamonds, whatever it is, and then they send it back to the mother country in order to benefit that mother country in, in some ways. And, that, and colonialism's been happening, you know, for, for hundreds of years. Um, so 
is Israel a colonial state? So it's kind of yes or no answer because, as I mentioned, there was something called the Jewish Colonial Trust, which is now Bank Leomi, which was this fund that I talked about to, to raise money to buy the land. There was also Theodore Herzl established an organization called the Palestine Jewish Colonial Association, um, which, you know, essentially did what I was talking about. But on the other hand, um, there's no mother country that sent Jews to do this. Like, we weren't sent by Russia or by Poland or by Germany or by any other country to come here and exploit the resources or the olives or, or you know, the, the things that are here. Mm. And so in that sense, it's very different from, you know, Australia or the United States because the reason that the Jews came back here in the 1880s was two main reasons. The first is the, the anti-Semitism from the pogroms in Russia. And the second reason was the, um, the, the ancient Jewish connection to Eretz Israel that, you know, that you know about from your scope of mm. education of of the temples and and all of that sort of thing and and you know the British have no connection to Australia you know the Spanish have no connection to you know Argentina and uh, Brazil and or well, the Portuguese in that case you know they they, mm. there's no there were there wasn't like an ancient British settlement you know in in Australia that the British could say we were returning to you know that that was a a classic colonial enterprise whereas here the Zionist return to, to Palestine is, is for two very different reasons. Edward Said, who was um, a very famous Palestinian academic, he, he spoke about Palestinians being the victims of victims. You know, that, that they, the Palestinians, obviously, when, when Israel was established, lost their, their land, like they lost their, their, their ability to be a majority here. Um, but they were also, I, I guess they were also, they experienced this by people who themselves were victimised by other people um, through the through the pogroms in Russia and the anti-Semitism in Europe. Historian Derek Pensler, which I always love quoting where I'm asking this question, gives the following answer to, to whether, whether this is a colonial enterprise or not. And he says, Zionism is a product of the era of colonialism. There would never have been a successful Zionist project without colonialism, but the Zionist project could not have succeeded without anti-colonialism and decolonization. He asks, how could we even think of the Zionist movement succeeding without support of the Western colonial powers, without the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and the British colonial presence in the near Middle East? without the British fostering for two decades the development of the Jewish national home. So, of course, Zionism is connected to Western colonialism. On the other hand, the State of Israel was born in 1948 during the era of decolonization and emerged at the same time as an independent India and Pakistan at a time when the British Empire was crumbling and the Zionist movement was able to take advantage of British weakness. A Zionist-armed insurrection forced the British to return to Palestine to turn Palestine file over to the United Nations. So if, if, I, if I lost you in that quote, I'll just summarise it very simply. Zionism started as a colonial movement. It then became an anti-colonial movement, which was to overthrow the British. Um, and it's different from other colonial movements because it doesn't have a mother country. Right. I was thinking that it was something else. Like it started, it didn't start as a colonial movement because of, you know, what you said, the um, victims as, of victims and coming from pogroms. There was no, you know, mother country sending Jews over to Israel. But 
um, when in 1917, when the Balfour Declaration was made, that was kind of seen as colonialism because the British, there was, you know, obviously lots of pressure for them to get out and they were like, well, okay, we kind of see Jews as kind of being our partner in this. We'll give it over to them or we'll give some of it to the Jews and then we can kind of have a colonial presence in in Israel-Palestine through the Jews and not through us. And so what I've been reading online is like that that's when colonialism started, when the Balfour Declaration was made. Is that yeah, wrong? It's interesting, you know, when you go to the Banksy Museum in Bethlehem and they start Palestinian history, they started from 1917 because they say that Balfour Declaration is really the moment that Palestine was lost, not, not the first Aliyah. Um, of, of 1882. And I think the reason for that is because the British were, you know, obviously the most powerful, one of the most powerful empires um, during during World War One. And the Balfour Declaration is interesting because, you know, Balfour was a bit of an anti-Semite. I don't know if people know this, even though we have streets named after no. him in Israel today, even the Prime Minister lives on Balfour Street. But he kind of didn't want Jews to be in in Britain so much. And he also had this, it's a bit of a conspiracy theory, but he believed that, you know, Jews control money and Jews control banks. And he wanted Jews to support the British during World War One. And so he said, well, look, if I if I write this letter to, to Weizmann, Balfour Declaration was never meant to be public. It was just a letter to one person. But if if I if I make this promise to this one individual, then that will kind of get the Jews to support me during World War One, and that, and then, and then if they win, we'll see, we'll see what we do. But um, for a lot of Palestinians, it really angered them about the Declaration because not only does it promise the the that there will be a Jewish national home in Palestine, but the British don't even control the place at the time. So you know, who are you, the British? You don't even control this country. It's still part of the Ottoman Empire at the time that the Balfour Declaration is signed. Who are you? Oh, to I didn't of, know that. Yeah, you're basically saying if we win this war, then we'll do our best to make sure that Palestine will have a place for a Jewish national home. And so that is that is classical colonial thinking. Now, the other thing that people don't know about the British is they also made promises to the Arabs in, in 1915 through the... Um, Hussein McMahon correspondence that kind of the same kind of deal, if you support us um, in the war against the Ottomans, then then we'll also make sure that you're looked after here. And there is a state created called Transjordan, which um, is today Jordan, uh, which uh, many Palestinians live in today. And so there, there is a sense of the British were kind of during World War One, I, I guess, playing off the Jews and the Arabs, basically promised something to both of them, that they couldn't possibly fulfil both of those promises. Okay. And sorry, again, to clarify, <laughs> so would you say that that is or isn't colonialism? Um, look, the British are the kings of colonialism, you know, like... Uh, exactly. You know, you, you can't look at the royal family and not think colonial. I've watched The Crown. It's a great show, by the way. Um, makes me like them a little bit. <laughs> um, but, no, before The Crown, I, I didn't I didn't like them. But I now feel really bad for Diana. But putting, putting that aside and how she was treated, yeah, I think, I think Zionism had help from colonial powers to be established here. So that's why it's a yes or no answer. It's not a yes or no answer, sorry. It's both. It's it's yes, colonialism mm. played a part in establishing a Jewish national home. But I think in addition to that, 
it's important to know, A, there is no mother country. There was no one sending Jews here. B, Jews chose this place and not Uganda or the Kimberley region in Australia. Like, this place was Dafka chosen because of an ancestral Jewish connection to this place, which makes it different from other colonial movements. And so that's why it's kind of like it's hard for me to say yes or no because it's a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just quickly on that point, I don't know if everyone knows that, that, sorry, oh, so many questions. This is <laughs> this is why this is so hard. So Herzl, was he originally from Russia? Herzl was Hungarian, actually. Uh, he was a journalist. And there's, there's also a big turning point with Herzl when he sees the Dreyfus trial. Dreyfus is a Jewish uh, army officer in France that's accused of being a spy for Germany. And there's this sort of mock trial where Dreyfus is humiliated and sent to Devil's Island, this, like, very remote prison in France. And Herzl's a journalist here, and he kind of sees this happening, and he says, if this can happen in France, you know, the most enlightened, progressive country in the world, this is after the French Revolution, if if they can just, you know, do this mock trial and put this innocent Jew in jail on trumped-up charges, then really there's no place for Jews in Europe. And so that's also... In terms of his personal story, what leads him to be in favour of the Zionist movement? You got to remember, Herzl was a secular Jew. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't. Didn't wear a kippah. Didn't wear tefillin. Didn't keep kosher. You know, his 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 Zionism was really about saving Jewish lives. It was physically mm. Jews need a place to be where they'll be safe and they can be here. Herzl, in fact, didn't even want Palestine. Like Herzl was the biggest advocate yes, for Uganda. Yes, this is, this is what I wanted to... Right, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah go on. Yeah, I, want, yeah, no, I just no, wanted no. to Herzl, talk about that. Herzl wanted Uganda because he was like, in 1903, he was like, look, the British are offering us, it was actually not Uganda, it was Kenya, but, you know, they're offering us this place in Kenya that we can, he called it a nachstil. Like Who was they? The British. Who was they the British offering? Had, the British had conquered lots of Africa as well. That's a whole other podcast. Um, but they they were looking <laughs> for people to settle in Uganda um, and they wanted people that have money and business and whatever. And they thought, okay, the Jews could be a people that could settle and develop, um, you know, this, this certain region um, of Kenya. And so that offer was brought to the Zionist Congress uh, in 1903 and they had a vote on it, and Herzl was the big advocate of let's go to Uganda because it will save Jewish lives. And the whole purpose of the Zionist movement was to save Jewish lives. And the Zionist Congress actually voted in favour of it. Um, The majority of the people said, yes, we should save Jewish lives. So they sent a committee to Uganda, they investigate it, they come back and then they say, look, this is not really going to work out. There's various logistical reasons why it's not going to work out. Also, the Ugandans are not thrilled about it either for reasons you could imagine. And so, and mm. then and then later on, the, the idea is kind of dropped. Um, but a lot of the people who vote against the Uganda proposal are Russian Jews who lived through these pogroms, you know, lived through uh, the pogroms that I'm talking about, who had the greatest reason to want there to be a Jewish national home. And they were like, you know, there's no there's no Zionism without Zion. Not you know, mm. like we, if we have to wait, then we'll wait. Um, and and that was really a fateful. But where were from. they at this time? They were in Russia at the time. They were in Russia, right? But they would say we'd rather stay in Russia with all the terrible things that are happening there than go to Uganda because if we're going to build a Jewish state, it has to be in Zion. Right. Um, okay. All right. That was. A lot more than what was in our notes, but that's okay. Yeah. There's just so many questions. 
So we've got to 1948. So yeah. Okay. So, and then yeah, so, what happened? So the UN, um, in all of their wisdom, um, decide that this this place should be partitioned into a Jewish state and an Arab state, and that's called Resolution 181. And um, the Jews are kind of split on it. Um, some Jews are like, look after the Holocaust after six million Jews are killed if the UN wants to give us a Jewish national home, even though it's not in all of the territory we wanted to, then we should take it. Um, there was another group of Jews called the Revision Zionists and said, no, we shouldn't take this, you know, we, we need the whole, you know, from the river to the sea. Um, among the Palestinians, there was also a split between the, the Nashashibi family who thought, look, you know, this kind of gives us some sort of political independence and we we need to somehow live here with the Zionists. And then there was obviously the Husseini uh, family who were very much opposed to this and who wanted to fight Zionism until the end. And overwhelmingly, um, ultimately, the Husseinis won that historical battle and there was, um, you know, immense Arab opposition to UN Resolution 181 because they were basically saying, again, Zionism is a colonial movement. Who are you, the UN, to give the majority of the land to the minority of the people? They were also, in terms of the map that was offered, saying, you know, a lot of the citrus growing areas in what is today, I guess, Gushtan or Greater Tel Aviv was going to, to the Zionists and the Arabs were getting mostly desert. So they were also unhappy with with the, the nature of the map. And um, But that, that vote passed, you know, 33 countries voted uh, in favour of it. Uh, Australia was one of them. In fact, Australia was a Secretary General of the UN, Doc Everett at the time, and uh, 10 countries voted against. And then as a result of that, um, uh, Israel declared a state in 1948. Uh, and then almost, you know, even before that declaration already from 1977, 1947, sorry, um, there was a war. Now, what's interesting is Israelis call that war the Declaration of Independence, and Palestinians call that war the Nakba. And I want to ask you, Hannah, have you heard the word Nakba before and when did you first hear it? So I've heard of it. I honestly, even though I feel like before this current war, I did know about Palestinians, I don't think I really engaged with Nakba until this war. So like six weeks ago. And why do you That's think, crazy. Why do you think you never heard about the Nakba before six weeks ago? Oh, my God. I don't know. I feel so sick even saying it. I don't know. I just never – I was never taught it. Um, I, I don't know. I'm embarrassed. I don't know. <laughs> why do you think? Hey, guys. Sorry to startle you and cut you off here. This episode went for about 40 minutes longer, so whilst Itai and I were editing and listening over it, we decided to split it into two parts and end this one here. So maybe have a little break before jumping into part two, go for a run, do some exercise, have something to eat. We know this part of the history is a lot to cover and it's really dense, so we understand if you need a little break before you jump into part two. Just for your knowledge, in the next episode, we will pick up from where we left off in this episode. We'll also discuss the concept of apartheid and challenge each other as to whether this word is an appropriate term for Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. Uh, We also talk about the previous offers for peace and a two-state solution from 1948 until now. And we, of course, 
discuss much, much more. As always, if you have any questions you or comments as well, you can contact us via email. It's from the Yara at gmail.com. And otherwise, we'll see you very soon whenever you choose to meet us right back here for part two of Where Did This All Begin? See you soon.